thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Navigating Life with Coach Lowe. Today, I am so excited to have my NFL sister in the building, Kim Connects, Kimberly Alexander. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on with me this morning. It, um, it is a total delight to, uh, to have you here and to just have a discussion about in depth about a time in your life that we hadn't really deep dived into, but this morning we are going to help the audience to just understand what a life was like to go from the NFL retirement to building business and then being diagnosed with multiple, multiple myeloma. Is that mm -hmm. it? Am I saying multiple myeloma? And so, it, it, there were so many different things that were happening and being your friend and not being super up close and personal, although we lived in the same city, you know, we all just still had very different lives that kept us busy and going in different directions, but there was still a closeness and a connection. And as I watched you from a distance, I was like, dun, 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 <laughs> Superwoman is in the building. And so it was just, it was just amazing to watch you. And so this morning, I'm just going to ask you if you would just introduce uh, the audience to who is Kimberly Alexander? Um, okay, well, I am Kimberly Alexander. Um, I think the first thing I would say is I'm a mom. You know, I love being a mom, even though my children are grown. I have, I have two men, uh, Eli and Evan, who are 22 and, and 24. Um, but I'm also a cancer advocate. Uh, I co-host a sports talk show and I own a company called Kim Connects because I love bringing people together and creating um, certain experiences a lot that have a nonprofit attachment to it. it we were doing a lot of things pre-COVID so there's kind of been a little bit of a shift but um, those are the things that I'm really excited about and one of my um, favorite hobbies is working out I think everybody knows that I really do love fitness and staying in shape and I'm really big on the importance of self-care and people knowing their bandwidth and, and respecting their bandwidth and um, not taking on too much more than they can chew. And, um, and so that's me, but it's definitely someone that I've had to evolve into because that was not me 10 years ago. That was not me 20 years ago. And um, some things happened that kind of forced me to change. And so here I am. Well, welcome. And I am so grateful to have been one who had the amazing opportunity of watching your journey and watching you go from one step to the next, from, you know, glory to glory, if I had it to say, you know, because as I watched you becoming who you are, there were some things in your backstory as it relates to losing your husband very early on, you became a widow at 37. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really, that's really young. And so 
you know, as I was thinking about all of this, I was like, okay, we, we have to start at one. And in our pre-interview, one of the things that really stood out to me is that you said when we found out about his diagnosis, I remember the morning vividly. And in the, um, in the hospital room, there was a computer and you Googled what the diagnosis was. Mm -hmm. So you had heard about melanoma, but now this was myeloma and you were trying to make the distinction. And right. so here you were with this diagnosis, not understanding what it was, but in your findings, you said it was horrifying mm -hmm. to know that your husband being as young as he is, and this was something that older people had uh, gone through is what I remember you sharing. So right. to, to be in this space, it was just really amazing to me. So if you could just take myself and the audience into understanding what those first encounters with this horrifying experience of multiple myeloma looked like? Well, um, the morning that I found out, Elijah had spent the night in the ER by himself. You know, when, when we had, had him taken to the hospital, I went back home and stayed with the kids because, you know, everything was happening so fast. We hadn't planned for either one of us to stay in the hospital overnight. And so when he called me that morning while I was on my way back to the hospital and he said, you know, he just kept asking me, when are you, when are you going to get here? I need you to sign some paperwork. And I kept asking him, you know, well, Hey, what is, what's the doctor saying? And he would never answer me. And I totally recognized that his avoidance must've been an indication of something pretty heavy getting ready to be um, dropped on me. And so I got off the phone with him and I immediately called my dad and panicked, went into crybaby mode like that. I know it's something bad. And pulled myself together, made it to the hospital. And when I walked in the room and he handed me a little clipboard and with some papers on it, he's asking me to sign. And I'm like, okay, you know, what, what is it? What are they saying? And he said, um, it's cancer. And it's incredible how quickly my brain would work. I immediately thought, okay, it's cancer, so that means they'll cut it out. Um, he'll be on chemo, and then it'll go away because people beat cancer all the time. Like you know, we can get beyond that. So then he told me it was myeloma, and I'm like, wait a minute, I know about melanoma, but I didn't know what myeloma was. So I googled it, and everything I read, you know just blew me away. It, it, that was when I learned that it was a blood cancer. So cutting it out wasn't an option. And um, it was just, the stories were really, really, really scary. And again, that was back in 2005. So there weren't nearly as many treatment options as there are now. I mean, things have really changed in terms of what happens when there's a myeloma diagnosis now. But to realize he was only 35 years old and um and he had just turned 35 as a matter of fact but most of the people that I was reading about were 65 and 70 it was just scary I mean just absolutely scary you know all the how did this happen to him what's going on is it hereditary um 
I mean, all of those things went through my mind, you know, as his wife. And I immediately became a caregiver, which um, was a role I had no preparation for. I had never even heard of the term caregiver, honestly. I don't think I realized I was a caregiver until a couple of years in. But, you know, I just went into fight or flight mode. So when you, when you talk about a caregiver, so that mm-hmm. looks like different things in, with different ailments, right? With different illnesses. So mm-hmm. when you talk about being a caregiver, you became all things to your husband. I mean, because when he found out he was already in a bad state is that is mm-hmm. that correct so what Very i'm sorry oh no i was gonna say yeah he was already he was in organ failure that's what had gotten us to the emergency when we didn't realize he was in organ failure but we absolutely could have lost him on that day so that that was another thing that was interesting to me is that Eli lasted five years as he battled this thing with treatment and everything, and he still did not expire from cancer. He ended up expiring from an aneurysm. So help me to understand that. So you found out he was already in organ failure, but how did this whole thing about an aneurysm in his head, how did that? Okay, so that's one of the things that I learned as a cancer caregiver. So um, in order for Eli to begin his chemo treatment and to ultimately receive a stem cell transplant a year later, we had to get his organs together. And that started with him having to go through a procedure called plasmapheresis, where they basically got his kidneys back to being healthy, and then he could start chemo. So he started chemo about a week or so after being officially diagnosed with myeloma. Um, About five months after that, he ended up getting his stem cell transplant, which was wonderful. He bounced back from it like a champ. That's basically when, and and this sounds very dramatic, but it's honestly how it was explained to me by a very honest nurse that I totally appreciate. But she said, Kim, we're basically about to give him a lethal dose of chemo, wipe out his entire immune system, bring him to the brink, and then bring him back to life with his own stem cells. So they'll give him an entirely new immune system so that he can um, fight cancer and just kind of hopefully hang on. Because the tricky part about myeloma is there's no cure for it. So it just kind of goes in and out of remission. And when it's in remission, you know, you function until you go back in to get tested and find out whether or not your numbers are moving or not. Well, the one thing I did not ever prepare for was the possibility of there being complications from the treatment itself. So Elijah ended up having a lot of problems with blood clots. Okay. And he ended up being on um, a few blood thinners and things to just kind of help him not, not develop clots, basically. And in, it must have been December of 09, he ended up with a very major blood clot um, in his chest. It came from them needing to put a port in him in order for him to receive chemo. And um, in March of 2010, one morning I was talking to him and I could tell that he wasn't feeling well. He was um, in distress and, and vomiting. And um, 
you know, again, being the caregiver at that point, you know, I'm almost five years in, so I knew I had a routine. If, if he's not doing well, you know, I'm going to call the doctor, let them know, ask them, what do I need to do? The doctor said I needed to bring him in. So I start bagging his stuff up because he ran a company, a couple of companies and I'm like, okay, let me pack his bag. I let him lay down and get some rest. And then I said, okay, Eli, I need you to get up so that you can go ahead and get dressed so that I can take you to the hospital. And, um, that's when I realized he wasn't responding to me. He was still breathing, but he wasn't responding. And I knew something was terribly wrong. I ended up calling the ambulance and they took him and um, got him to the first hospital. And again, all this time in my head, I'm thinking, okay, this will just be something else that we have to deal with on top of the myeloma. Like he's breathing, everything's fine. We'll get beyond it. We get, I get to the hospital and they told me they noticed some bleeding on his brain. So I'm, you know, again, just kind of like, okay, I worry about it. We'll see what happens. Well, his physician at the uh, other hospital at Medical City Dallas asked to have him transported over. And when I got to Medical City Dallas, that's when I was pulled aside along with his brother and informed that there was no brain activity. And that was, it was just that quick, just that quick. Like literally woke up that morning talking to him and by that evening, he was basically gone. I ended up needing to um, decide when I would take him off of life support. And I had to take him off life support about three days later. Yeah. So that was, um, that, that was rough. I mean, as I'm, as I'm listening, I, you, to hear the doctor say, we're going to give him a lethal dose to mm -hmm. take him down, to bring him back. Mm -hmm. And all the way through all of this, when you're talking about how I was talking to him and I noticed that he was non-responsive, mm -hmm. they said that we noticed that he had a bleed on his brain. The thing that I hear from you is that you remain optimistic. It was mm -hmm. just like, okay, I, I, I hear what y'all saying, but... Okay, so that's just one more thing that we have to work on. We're going to get through this. And I yeah. mean, where, where did that come from? Because I'm just like, oh my God. Honestly, I don't even know. And I think, you know, even in hearing you describe it, I never, it never dawned on me that that was how I handled it. But I handled it like that literally from day one. I mean, even in my interactions with his oncologist, I mean, I tell him all the time, you know, I hear what you're saying about myeloma. I read about myeloma and what it does and the typical outcomes. That doesn't apply to us, period. <laughs> <All right> now. <laughs> I mean, so in my head, I, I guess it was just a matter of just trying to not allow myself to get down. I didn't want to, I didn't want him to get down. You know, we had two sons. I didn't want the boys to get down. Like I wanted us to be able to live life as normal as we possibly could in spite of. And unfortunately, you know, what happened happened, but even in recovering from that or attempting to recover and, and move on, I pretty much had the same attitude and outlook. Like I, I just refused to be defeated by myeloma, period. I love that. I, I love the mindset that 
that you took, it was like, okay, this thing is trying to kill my husband and I can't let that happen. Because when mm -hmm. I think about that frame of mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is not going to kill us because mm -hmm. if this hurts him, it hurts us. It mm -hmm. hurts, and you know, now this has an effect not only on me, but on our sons as well. And so one of the things that you shared and, and I'll let you tell it. I, I had asked you the question. So how do you how do you keep his memory alive? How do you, I mean, because they are now 22 and 24 and they were in elementary and middle school or were yeah, they were in middle school? Well, they were in they were in elementary when he was diagnosed in middle school when he passed away. Okay, so that is still very young. So there has been some transitions for them. And so how do you just keep them motivated, keep them encouraged and keep your husband's memory in front of them, their dad? Well, I think one of the, um, it's incredible how life works. And I was just talking to someone last night about how when we decided we wanted to become parents, how we handled it. We were very particular about parenthood. You know, I don't like surprises. And so I went so far as to do a pre-pregnancy checkup. And then we planned both boys. And I planned for both boys to be born during the NFL offseason. So he would have as much time as possible to bond with them before going to training camp. Both of our boys came four weeks early, but we had one at the end of December and one at the end of February. So he had time to bond with them, you know, so that when he went off to training camp, you know, he, he they weren't coming home like, you know, and being strangers, you know, he had a good relationship with them. And um, in hindsight, I now realize how important that was just to make sure that they had as many moments as possible to spend together and um I'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to gather my thoughts you know i think that when it comes to memories i didn't want my kids memories to be of anything that would make them really sad and i was very particular and even strategic about it even in planning his celebration of life yeah. you know i knew that you know not only was I going to be there with my biological sons, but my husband was a little league football coach. So all of those little boys were his sons as well. Yeah. And I, I'm, not, I'm sure you remember seeing all the little wildcats who were with me at, at, the, at the service. And yeah. I didn't want any of their memories to be, you know, they were already brokenhearted. Yeah. I mean, I just, my kids yeah. were devastated. I saw their faces. I saw the emotions in those little boys. So when we had a celebration of life, I wanted it to be just that. I didn't want there to be sadness. I didn't really allow myself. I don't think I cried in front of them. And it was all very intentional because I was so much more concerned about them than I was about myself. You know, I guess for me, I looked at it like I'm an adult. I'm a big girl. You know, I, I put my big girl panties on and, and keep it moving. And so when it comes to keeping my husband's memory alive now, I mean, I just, we all still talk about, um, you know, like I'll bring things that the boys might not remember and be like, hey, you know, let me tell you something about your dad. He would do blah, 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 you know, or I'll tell them stories about what, um, you know, stories his friends have shared with me. Mm -hmm. I, I believe in being very open. I believe in being very matter of fact with them. 
you know, they're grown now, so there's really no need to tippy toe around quite, quite as much. But um, I never wanted to be one of those people that, you know, like made them visit the grave site. I'm not one on, you know, let's go there with balloons. And like, to me, that's a little, that's a bit much. And I know my bandwidth and I just kind of pass that on to my kids, I guess. I would rather keep good memories in my head than, than fill my head with sad images and things like that. I just don't want to do it. We have great pictures and great memories and I believe in hanging on to that. I love it. I love it. And I, I think that that is, I think that that'll be helpful to the audience when the person that may be challenged by these things are listening, because mm -hmm. I think that sometimes people want to silence the memories almost as if they never existed, because mm -hmm. for some people, that is how they work through the process. You talked mm -hmm. about a part of your transition that, and the way that you made mention of it was interesting to me. And I want you to help the audience to understand what that meant. You said, I went into flight, into fight mode. And mm -hmm. one day you decided that I have to think about this from the frame of mind that I will be a possible young widow. Mm -hmm. But you prepare for that. And as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm learning that you are a really super strategic person. <laughs> in, in, as you're talking about your marriage life, as you're talking about building your family with your children, and just how you guys navigated the grieving process, that you were super strategic about things. But when you talk about preparing to be a widow, bring me into understanding what that is. Well, so when I was reading everything back in 05, you know, I'm one of those people, I couldn't avoid Google as much as they tell you, oh, don't Google it, don't look at it. I didn't really ever feel like I had a whole lot of options. And so there was no way that I could read, oh, well, the typical lifespan for someone once they've been diagnosed with myeloma is four to five years. I in spite of me keeping a happy front and doing so much, that was always in the back of my mind. Yeah. Like I can sit up here and, and okay, hope for the best, hope for the best, hope for the best. And then if it didn't happen, fall apart, or I can hope for the best, hope for the best, hope for the best. But just in case, hey girl, don't forget, you remember what you read. And so to me, that looked like, okay, if this is what happens, I need to learn how to, you know, kind of move accordingly after that. Now, part of that was made a little bit easier because my husband was big on creating lists for me um, in terms of if something were to happen to him, this is what I would need to do. Mm -hmm. So that helped tremendously. Um, but the problem was with myeloma, he was always being tested, you know, with his blood. So we kind of knew when it was becoming active and knew, okay, we're about to move into a season of being challenged. Um, let's kind of like buckle up and see what's about to happen. The aneurysm completely caught us off guard because he was actually in the middle of treatment um, when he had his aneurysm. He was um, 
in, in the middle of a clinical trial. And so I was so just totally caught off guard. However, I do believe it helped me in terms of picking up things and just kind of trying to game plan how to move forward. I tell people all the time though, you know, don't look at me like, oh my gosh, she's so incredibly strong. I had a big time support system. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I have a, my mom and my dad who had been divorced for 32 years. They got divorced when I was two, uh, moved into my house from Florida. Both of them left Florida and moved to Dallas. And so my mom moved in upstairs. My dad moved in downstairs and helped me raise my boys. And so their hands-on involvement with my kids allowed me to regroup because Lord knows, I mean, I was clueless. You know, one of the things about being an NFL wife, first of all, you know, I met my husband when I was 19. I was in college when we got married. I was in college. I was in between semesters when I had our son, you know, so college life wasn't a matter of, okay, go to class, go party, go hang out, go into career. My college life was go to class, get out of class, go home, breastfeed my son, feed my husband, figure out what I'm wearing to the game on Sunday, see who he has to line up against to hope they beat him, see if we're going to the playoffs. Like it was a completely different ball game. And so when he retired from football, in my head, I thought, okay, well, he'll walk away from football. He'll go off and do what he wants to do. It's now my turn to do what I want to go and do. And that really didn't happen. You know, I ended up becoming his caregiver. And so when he passed away, I promised him that I was going to keep his nonprofit going. You know, one of the things he wanted to do that he let me know of when he was recovering from his stem cell transplant is he wanted to do more for other people in the cancer community. So I promised him when he started his foundation that I would keep it going. After he passed away, I went and became certified in nonprofit management. You know, I wanted to be hands-on and keep all the events and everything going, but I couldn't do it. I just, I couldn't do it. And I, I struggled with it for a couple of years because I felt so incredibly guilty about um, not being able to keep his nonprofit going. But I also recognized that I needed to take care of myself and mentally, I just wasn't prepared to eat, sleep and drink cancer. And so um, I did remain active in the cancer community. I got involved with the local chapter of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I still do a lot of ambassador work and and work with a few patient leadership councils with um, some pharmaceutical companies. I'm still like super, super hands-on in the cancer community, which is incredibly rewarding for me. And, um, And I'll always do that. As long as there's no cure for myeloma, I'm always going to be running my mouth about it and trying to help people with it. But I hope I answered your question because I feel like I just went off on this tangent, but that's, that's how I kind of had to, to regroup um, over the past 10 years since he's been gone. You actually answered a lot of questions. And so that was really, I mean, that was really, really good. I just want to say that is incredible that your parents put their lives in Florida, Florida, to come to be with you and your children. Mm -hmm. And that was a season of helping you 
to mm-hmm. navigate that new season of being a widow. Mm-hmm. How, how beneficial has that been? Because both of your parents are still here. And again, like we talked about earlier, I have watched you evolve into, evolve into this amazing woman. One of the things that we talked about in the pre-interview is that before your husband passed away, mm-hmm. you, your life was not what it is today. And you were a part of our community, the NFL wives. So that was a different conversation many of those women were still married. Um, Many of us at that time, I was still married to my former husband that played with uh, Eli. And so, um, so when you think about changing life and becoming a widow and moving on, you mentioned how you had to discover new things about yourself. What did Kim like? How did all of that work for you? Goodness. Um, that was a really a gradual process. And, um, you know, just again, having my parents on hand was a tremendous help. You know, we even still get together for holidays. We spent Thanksgiving and Christmas together. We still do everything as a family. So them being there and helping me in that capacity allowed me to rediscover myself. And I tell people all the time, you know, it was, it was literally like a transformation, almost like a lotus flower, all of that, just everything just kind of reemerging from, honestly, what was an ugly situation. Um, and part of it actually it, it revolved around trying to keep this nonprofit going. You know, I lived in a bubble. My bubble consisted of my football family, you know, people like you and all my other NFL wife friends, my kids' little league teams and and my husband. And, you know, that was it. You know, I rarely ventured down into Dallas. I mean, unless it was some restaurant or sporting event, or maybe if I was running to uh, North Park Mall, I mean, that was pretty much all I ever did. But in terms of keeping a nonprofit going, I knew that I was going to have to network more. I knew that I was going to have to meet different people and build up a base to help, you know, keep fundraising goals going. And so that was just a lot for me. Um, I realized that, you know, I had never done a happy hour. I had never, (laughs) I'd never booked my own trip to go anywhere. Like I had been take, like just coddled, you know what I mean? And at the time I didn't, I didn't get it or see it as like a problem. Um, but it was a challenge for me you know, now I'm 37 years old and it's like, all right, girl, everything is on you. And so there were moments when, you know, I would be in the middle of making a decision and wanting to do one thing and in the back of my head knowing, oh, well, Eli wouldn't like that. But then it's like, well, wait a minute, Eli's not here anymore. And like, okay, Kim, like, what are you going to do? You, you can make this decision. Um, and so I grew up I mean, there's no other way to put it. I grew up, I, I think what another really pivotal moment for me was when I turned 39. Um, Elijah was 39 when he had his, his, his aneurysm and he passed away. And I remember when I turned 39, how young I felt. And I was like, oh my God, like I couldn't, 
I couldn't wrap my brain around trying to understand what he possibly would have been going through emotionally and mentally having to come to terms with the fact that he was dealing with a terminal cancer. You know, we didn't have any time to prepare. So it was kind of like you find out you have it and you instantly go into treatment mode and trying to keep life as normal as possible mode. But there wasn't a whole lot of time or energy or effort put forth on focusing on how it was making us feel. Yeah. And um, so when I turned 39 and realized how young it was, I had a shift mentally and went into, you know, if it's something I want to go do, I'm going to go do it. You know, life is so short. So one of the first things I did, I know it's silly, but I really wanted them. But I went and got like, I wanted butterfly tattoos. So I went and got my butterfly tattoos. And, like nobody ever really sees them. And then when they do see them, they're like, you have tattoos? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm going to get some more because they're, I'm addicted to them. But I wanted them. And to me, whenever I catch a glimpse of them, they remind me of, you know, that moment in my life where I went through hell and, and came out of it. You know what I mean? And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I tell myself there has to be a reason that our family experienced this. I mean, it's honestly a very unlikely story. My husband's story was unlikely. Here he was, a 10th round draft pick. I didn't have 10 rounds anymore. He ended up having a, a nine-year NFL career, played on some great teams, had some great memories, walked away from the game, ends up diagnosed with an incurable blood cancer and passes away at 39. That's not normal. Right. It's not normal. And, and so I feel like, you know, the things that he did after he was diagnosed, Elijah actually became a, a cancer advocate himself. Um, he would attend blood cancer conferences and, and help other myeloma patients and other cancer patients in general. And, and our foundation would fundraise for kids who had cancer. So honestly, I just picked up the baton where he left off. And so, um, he definitely set a great example, not only for myself, but for our boys. And I just kind of keep the torch burning for him that way. That is, that is so awesome. I just, I just love it all. I love the fact that you, you were up for whatever it was going to take. And for you to recognize that you had to discover where were Kim dreams prior to you know, being a mom and all of the, being married, all of these things, you know, it was like, okay, so I've been through this NFL life and I've been quite sheltered and my husband has been a great support to me. So now mm -hmm. I, it's all on me. I have to make all of the decisions, everything rest on me that had to be quite overwhelming i mean from it because you were like real grown it wasn't like you were still in college right. you were real grown but you still had this really really strong and solid foundation that whatever it was that you needed it was like okay well let's do that well i got you and you know all of that and so when i think about that i'm like okay so moving forward has has dating been has that been a challenge i i'm recently divorced for only five years and i'm like what in the world is going on <laughs> listen um so 
social media did not exist when Elijah and I were dating. Um, you know, we were in college. It was what, 1992, 93. So none of that existed, but it does now. Right. And I tell all of my friends who are in relationships or they're like, oh, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Think about it. <laughs> it is, it's the wild, wild west out here, just to put it mildly, especially for someone like me. Um, and I think what also makes it a little bit more of a challenge is I don't necessarily want or need to be married again. And so, um, and, and in addition to all of that, I've had some incredible experiences. So I think that the one thing that I find with men, and I might get in trouble, <laughs> um, but you know, I'm going to keep it real. Okay. One thing that I have found with men that I have encountered now that I'm single is a lot of them lead with money or they lead with what they have or they lead with their career and what they can provide. And I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> don't care. It doesn't move me because one of the things that I realized is you can have all this money, all this education, this great car, this great house, and zero personality. Agreed. You can be, you can be so dull and so set in your ways that I know, like, it's just, it's not even worth it. So, um, and I'm kind of a, a spitfire a little bit. You think? A little bit. <laughs> You know, it might be a little, a little bit of a handful. You um, did this. And so, I, it, Kim, listen, you did this. I'm thinking this. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I, I, I am who I am, and my experiences have made me who I am. And I'm not going to settle for um, what looks good on paper because honestly what I'm realizing is what looks good on paper tends to bore me um, wow. <laughs> I, I just need to I, I own it it's me I, I'm in a season of being very honest with myself and self-awareness and um, and I recognize it you know I've got girlfriends who are like Kim I want you to meet a guy let me introduce you to him he does this and I'm just like <laughs> really <laughs> you know you should meet this guy and he does he does this and I'm like I just don't I don't care like I just don't like to me it's um life is short and moving forward I want to have amazing experiences with somebody who just makes my heart just jump out of my chest so um yeah that's dating for me it has been interesting I can only imagine because you have been in the world longer than me. And it's so interesting because when I was in the season of making the decision to divorce, you were like, okay, are you sure? <laughs> you know, do you absolutely yeah. positively have to do this because it's not what you think out here? And so yeah. that was not at all my reason for divorcing, but I valued your mm -hmm. honesty. I valued your friendship and just that wisdom that you seeded into my life. So community, friendships, relationships are so, so very significant 
when we go through life challenges, when we face those pivotal moments in our lives that make us different. Because much like you, I have evolved into someone very different than mm -hmm. I was as that supportive wife and that mother who raised her children. And now I am an empty nester and divorced from my mm -hmm. former husband. And so, you know, it, it is very different. The dating, it's very different. Life as a whole, it is very different, but it has its benefits, I must say. It definitely has its benefits. And so um, one of the things that I wanted you to do was to just share with the audience, what are some of the self-care things that you did for Kimberly that helped you to get to the place that you are? Oh, um, well, so one of the things that I realized, and I, I actually did it unintentionally when Elijah was in treatment. So I was in school and I was in a, like a little fitness class. I'll be honest with you. I was taking a pole fitness class. Awesome. <laughs> I loved it. I, I actually missed those classes. So anyway, so I was taking those classes, but I didn't really communicate with the people in the class. It was very high and by, high and by with the ladies in that class and high and by with the students in um, the classes that I was taking at UTD. And um, the only reason I did it was because when Elijah was in treatment, when he was diagnosed with cancer, I started a blog and I was keeping up, up to date with it. You know, just I, I let it serve as a place to let everybody know um, where they could go and look if they wanted to know how he was doing, what was going on with him, what was going on with us. And then, of course, Facebook became a thing. So I would sometimes post on Facebook. But I realized that in doing that, anytime you would run into people, a lot of times that was all they wanted to talk about. Right. So I needed to create a space where I had a little bit of peace. And I didn't, I didn't, like I said, I didn't do it intentionally, but I realized how much I loved going into my class and being able to have conversations with people who were asking me about me and yeah. what, what I had going on and what, you know, what was I focused on in terms of like assignments in school or, you know, just little small talk in um, the fitness class. So when Eli passed away, I still, I was still in school. It was at like at the end of the semester. So I still had to go and I was still working out and they didn't ask me anything about it. And it allowed me to have a little bit of normalcy when my whole world had flipped completely upside down. Yeah. And so um, that was really, really important to me. And so I, I, I tell people a lot, especially if their loved one is newly diagnosed or if they're newly diagnosed, like do not feel obligated to go on social media and tell everything and everybody about what's going on with you. Now, I know recently we've had a couple of instances where there are people who are, who are like extremely private. You know, we just lost Chadwick Bozeman, who kept, a, kept it very, very hush-hush about him having um, colon cancer. I also just recently lost another friend who had a blood cancer, of all things, for about 12 years that I had no idea about. And I posted about it all the time he never mentioned to me what he was going through. So I totally recognize that people cope with a cancer diagnosis. They cope with 
being a caregiver, they cope with grieving the loss of a loved one very differently. Um, but I do like to at least share what I did because, you know, there, there's a middle ground. You got to figure out what works for you. Right. Now, one of the things that happened to me when, when Eli passed away and I started going out more to network, I also started eating more. And yeah. I noticed that I was gaining weight and saw a photo of myself and was just like, all right, okay. You know, in addition to, you know, needing to be there for your sons and, and coping and moving forward and all of the things that you've got going on, you don't want your weight to also become an issue. So I started working out more. And um, to this day, it tends to be like my favorite form of self-care. And um, I really try to encourage other people to do it. It's the best way for me to clear my head. And I don't, I'm not like one of those people where it's like, oh, you know, you gotta, you need to watch what you eat and run 12 miles. Like, no, like to me, you know what, <laughs> get up and go outside for 10 minutes and go for a walk. And you, you'll be amazed at how just a few minutes of getting that blood flowing, getting you some vitamin D from that sun. It'll just make you feel better. And before you know it, heck, you keep it up for a few days, you've got yourself a little routine going and you might see some changes in your body. But at the end of the day, most importantly, you're going to feel some changes in your spirit and in your heart and in your head. And that's really important to me. That is so awesome. I, I so, so very love it. I, I just love it. So um, what the, the other thing that I this this kind of caught me by surprise because one of the things that you shared early on and we're going to tie it up right here is that you said that there wasn't um like there was no manufacturer's uh guide or anything to help people to navigate this process, like at the onset of diagnosis, like you just talked about, people can tend to be so private. But I think that mm -hmm. sometime in your being a voice and talking about where you are is that you open other people up to what it is that you're going through. And sometimes you're starting a conversation. And and you don't even know that it's other people out there not that not only need what it is that you have to give in terms of information, but they mm -hmm. are also wondering, okay, what does all of this mean? Most of the time when people hear cancer, there is an emotional uproar within because they see it as a, a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And so what you said very early on in this interview is that, it is not just that. And so for us, it was not going to be that. And you know what? You made that declaration and that was not what mm -hmm. took your husband to heaven. So, True. I mean, I, I just think that it's important for people to understand that cancer is not always a death sentence and it is something that you can survive from. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I want you to speak to the audience in terms of if there were three things that you could think of that you could give to somebody, three jewels that you okay. could give to someone who is recently diagnosed or mm -hmm. they are just struggling with where they are currently because of the diagnosis. What are three mm -hmm. tools that you can give them 
to help them to hold on, to help them to stay encouraged as they journey on this path to overcoming? So one of the things I would first recommend is to find a tribe, find either a support group of people that um, are going through what you're going through, because I feel like they can offer you some some support that other people who are not going through it, they just know stuff that people who aren't experiencing it just won't know. So whether it be a support group through a nonprofit, even a support group through like Facebook, like social media is so incredible. Even Instagram, like all of these social media platforms, if you put in a ha the hashtag symbol and, and the name of the disease treatment, whatever, you will be connected with a whole bunch of people who are literally experiencing a lot of the same things. So if you go to a support group and you don't feel comfortable because you don't necessarily connect with the people there, don't, don't let that stop you. Just go to Facebook and see if you find another group that you might be able to identify better with. Um, I definitely would recognize and maybe even write down and and find a way to focus on the things that make you feel good you know if it's reading a book you know going out by the water like little simple things that don't cost a lot mm -hmm. one of the things that i think that caught me off guard and, and it breaks my heart for people who are dealing with cancer now is it's so incredibly expensive it's expensive to fight when it comes to treatment options it's, it's expensive to eat healthy yeah. So I was always big on telling people to, you know, find inexpensive ways to develop habits that would make them kind of save their happy. Yeah. Um, a good place to start is to go to Eventbrite. Eventbrite provides a lot of free information to events that might serve of some interest, like just find a new hobby, just anything to help you mentally get beyond what you're going through physically because i know cancer and chemo is a drain it's a drag you know it's a it's a a way to kind of help you get over the hump to get you to the next day but i also know it doesn't make you always feel good and so you kind of have to make a conscious effort when you can to do that um let me think what else would i tell someone you know what eat that extra scoop of ice cream get that corner piece of cake all that like the big rose icing on it um anything that just i man have fun when you can live in the moment take a bunch of pictures have that extra margarita with that shot of tequila just you know if you're in treatment like you know make sure you tell your doctor but you know sometimes it's a little bit a little bit is okay just the moments where you just have to have a good time because one of the things that i think a diagnosis does to not only a patient and a caregiver is it it makes you very aware of just how fleeting life can be and it's very sobering and you just have to figure out a way to have a good time in the midst of it I love it okay and so the last question outside of just sharing how people can connect to you is what are maybe two or three things that you would share in terms of because you shared a few things that you did but mm -hmm. when you think about people today who you those you advocate for those families that you get to speak directly to 
what would you say to the caregiver who has recently their spouse their loved one has just been diagnosed what are a couple of things that you would share to them with them to do in this season to uh to not to stay in their space of happiness mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the first things I, not I think, I know for a fact, but the first thing I would say is be patient. Be very patient. Be very, very patient. Um, one of the things that I eventually realized that I didn't know early on, because it just, again, when you become a caregiver, you're kind of thrust into it with no, no guide. Um, I wish that someone had explained to me how sometimes chemo affects someone's personality. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there were times when I'd get frustrated with my husband because he'd be, you know, arguing with me about something that I knew happened one way and I'd be sitting there so confused, like, you know, how, like what's going on. And I later learned about a term called chemo brain that, um, explained a lot to me and, and it made me realize, you know, this man, his body is going through a lot trying to process everything they're putting in him to beat this cancer. I need to recognize that and not be sensitive and feel, you know, offended or bent out of shape if he's not in agreement with me. So be patient and, and read up on chemo brain just to kind of get a better understanding of what a cancer patient is going through. Um, also, know your bandwidth. And if you know that you need a break, don't feel guilty about needing to take a break. Um, I feel like, especially women, we tend to feel like we have to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and we do it. And we don't take a few minutes out of a day, a week, a month to focus on ourselves. So I know it sounds simple to be like, oh, well, go get a manicure, go get a pedicure, go walk the mall, drive around in your car and listen to your favorite CD. Just do something for yourself. Go to the pet store and play with puppies, like something to, um, to just make yourself feel good. Like it's, it's okay. And you know what? Also ask for help. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Listen, I know for a fact, I did not do that enough. And I know that had, had my girlfriends known some of what I was going through and some of what I may have needed them for at some point, I'm sure that they would have stepped up like champs. But being who I am, I didn't say anything. And I would not recommend it to anyone. Speak up. If you need help, say something. There are people out here who will bend over backwards. There are strangers out. Maybe. Can we talk about strangers right quick there are people who are paying attention to your story they are they are there just you know even if they just hear through the grapevine from somebody else that you need help they will bend over backwards to, to do things for you so just ask for help it's incredible the support system that um i have not only from my friends but from my my social media friends who have never met me in real life who I know would just come through because they just they just like the story and, and they're incredibly supportive and have big hearts. So it's some beautiful people out here and we need to to learn how to lean on each other and be sweet to each other and and take care of each other. I love it. I love it. That I mean that just that just gave me life just right there. I mean because it is to your point 
But I think that sometimes people are so afraid that the way that they think that they should connect with others is not going to happen. You know, Mm so um, the fear of will I be accepted? All you need to do is show up as you ask the question, Mm -hmm. ask for the support. You know what I'm saying? Even in your going to the pet store, you never know who you'll encounter. You know, we, we just never, never, I was just telling a friend of mine the other day, I remember after Eli passed away being in, oh goodness, I'm a tear up, um, being in the mall and having this lady walked up to me and she stood right in front of me and said, everything is going to be okay. Wow. And that's all she said and walked off. Don't know who that lady was to this day. Wow. I, I've accepted the fact that she was an angel and literally just placed in that moment in front of me because I needed to hear those words. Wow. Now that is a fantastic and incredible, if you will, testimony, because it happens. It really does. And I have been an angel to people in times. And God told me to give a woman I absolutely did not know a hug in the grocery store. Girl, (laughs) I almost fainted. I was like, God, I am not doing that. But I did she accept the hug? She accepted the hug and she was just like, what do you know about me? Why, why did you do that? I was like, well, I was going on down the aisle on my own. And just in my spirit, I heard God say, give that lady that you just passed a hug. And I said, no. And so this lady cried. She cried. She was like, I cannot believe this. She was like, that was exactly what I needed. And so Mm. I have become very sensitive to that. And that is why I was able to say, we never know who we're going to encounter as we are doing the necessary things that we need to do. Because at the end of the day, it is really God that orders our steps. And he gives us what we need and he will do it through a stranger to your point. Yeah. So Kim, thank you, thank you, thank you. Kudos to one of my sheroes. I love you. I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And finally, I just want to ask you if you would share how people can connect with Kimberly Alexander. So I am on Instagram and Twitter as the Kim Alexander. So it's T H E. K-I-M-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Kimberly Hall Alexander on Facebook. So I'm all over the place. You are. Or, or you can look up the hashtag, you can look up the hashtag Kim Connect, C-O-N-N-E-C-T-S and find me there as well. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. I want to say thank you to my audience for tuning in today and sharing our lovely Kimberly Alexander, sharing this moment with us. Thank you so much for coming on, Kim, and sharing your story. It has just been a phenomenal journey, and I am so glad to have been a part of it. You have a phenomenal, phenomenal day, and I love you to pieces. Thank you for being my hero. Bye now.